Welcome to Concept to Creation, a podcast featuring entrepreneurs who share their business journey. We'll hear what motivated them to turn their dreams into a business. They'll share stories from the trenches of business, from raising capital, creating products or services, navigating regulations, hiring employees, and managing competition and growth. We'll discover their successes and failures, and they'll provide advice for budding entrepreneurs. Now, here's your host and fellow entrepreneur, Mike Conrad. Welcome to episode number two of the Concept to Creation podcast. We've doubled our episodes. Uh, Today is a uh, very unique interview, or I should say an interview with two very unique people. Uh, What they do is not so unique. They operate a contract manufacturing company for the electronic assembly industry. What is perhaps a little bit more unique is the fact that they are a husband and wife team. They started the business, got married all in the same year. So uh, we're going to ask some pretty good questions about that. But let me introduce my guests today, my guests today, uh, Allison and Chad Budbarson. Welcome to Concept to Creation. I appreciate you being my, my guest today. And I also Thank appreciate the, the sometimes difficulty in talking about your own business. I think we as business owners love to talk about our own business, probably uh, at nauseum with our friends, right? They, they've heard all the stories, they, they, all that. But, but um, sometimes it's hard to talk about uh, the struggles that a business has, uh, it's easier to talk about the successes, but no success comes without struggle and no success comes without failure. And we don't want to just highlight failures, but uh, my experience at least is that uh, failure almost has a silver lining. There's usually some takeaway from that. And, you know, I know if I were to hire somebody, um, which I've done many times as you guys have, uh, I love to ask what their failures were. Um, to me, that's even more interesting than their successes. Because if you just have nothing but successes, they don't know what failure is like. You know, we just don't know if they're on a lucky streak or if it's a, a skill-derived uh, result. So uh, we'll kind of dive into that. So uh, why don't uh, one of you um, tell my audience a little bit more about out-of-the-box manufacturing, your contract assembly place. I, I've read a lot of material about uh, out-of-the-box. I understand uh, from what I read it's quite a unique company. You do things a little bit differently than perhaps other contract manufacturers and other companies in general. So uh, tell us a little bit about, about uh, out-of-the-box manufacturing. Go ahead, Allison. Okay, thanks, Chad. So out-of-the-box manufacturing is a contract manufacturer of electronic assemblies. We are located in Renton, Washington. Uh, we started our business in 2008 as uh, Mike alluded to, we uh, we got married in August of 2008 and filed for our business license in September of 2008. Um, so it was an interesting year for sure. Uh, Chad and I actually met at work. Um, I was in production and he was engineering uh, at a company that does something very similar to what we do now. Uh, the, the difference about out-of-the-box manufacturing, I think, is our product mix. Um, we really try to support equally small to medium volume manufacturing as well as quick turns and prototypes. So the idea that we can do a same day consigned uh, uh, turn on an MPI is really neat. We also have, uh, we can do those same day turns with certs as well. So we are AS9100 registered. Uh, We have ITAR registration, uh, ISO uh, 1345, 
Um, so really, really uh, quite difficult assemblies that we can turn pretty quickly. Excellent. Um, Chad, anything to add to that? Yeah, so like like you said, we got married, right? We eloped, we went to Hawaii, we got off the plane, we got home, we filed for a business license. So it was literally that fast. Uh, now, normally the order, <laughs> I shouldn't say this because I don't want to jinx you, but you've been, oh, you've been in this long enough, I'm not going to jinx you. You, you took things quite out of order. Normally the order is you start a business and then you file for divorce. <laughs> my wife and I worked together. Um, uh, when I started this business, I started my business out of my garage. And then my wife basically said, you know, find another wife or find a building, you know, cause this, we, we couldn't get the cars in the garage and UPS was constantly coming and going and you know, that type of scenario. And then uh, eventually she quit her job and started working with me. And uh, we worked side by side for a while. And depending upon who tells the story, she either stormed out and quit or I fired her in a rage. Probably a little bit of accuracy in both. Um, but uh, uh, we're just coming up on our 40th anniversary. So clearly we're doing something oh, right. And one of the things, thank you, one of the things we did right was deciding not to work together. Um, but um, I think it takes uh, you know, a very special relationship to be able to, to navigate that. So whose idea was it to to um, jump out of the world of a dependable paycheck and into the world of, of uncertainty and risk uh, that uh, entrepreneurship just brings with it? Well, it started in our garage um, originally, yeah. and it was more of a at that point. Um, so I was just kind of doing things on the side, on weekends, stuff like that. Um, it, it was, I, I, what was that? It was 2008, I think 2009, we kept on going. By 2010, we really didn't do any business. Um, we're thinking about just, you know, you know, closing the business license out, all that kind of stuff. 2011, I think, when it really kept started to pick back up again. Um, at that point, we had a pick-and-place machine in our garage. We had an oven in our garage. We had a screen printer in our garage. We had, you know, three people coming in uh, on weekends and nights and stuff like that. And we just had our baby. And Allison, similar story to you, um, this is not okay and then use the bathroom in my living room, um, either get out of the garage or quit this crap. So, well, it's very similar. I, I've heard that before. I've, I've, I've played that record before. So, uh, and it's good advice, right? Because uh, it, it kicked you out of kind of a, a comfort zone and put you out into the, into the real world. Every business has to go through that. So, and even at that time, I still kept my day job. Um, even when we moved into the first facility, we hired our first employees. I still kept my day job to basically, right? I had to have that, that income in order to find a company. Um, so it wasn't for it was 2013, 2012, somewhere. In, I actually quit my day job and it took the plunge to full time onto this. Yeah. Uh, my wife was the backup financing. You know, she did the same thing. She kept working and at least we could cover our mortgage and our health insurance. And, and I could, uh, I could, you know, uh, take that money and, and blow it on a business, you know, at least for the first few years. Uh, have either of you had these entrepreneurial um, uh, desires before this, or was this just an opportunity that threw itself in front of you that, that you, you took? Me personally, I think it was just an opportunity that showed up. Mm -hmm. um, I had customers and people that wanted me to build stuff, and I like building it. And the industry that I moved away from, because I, I was in contract manufacturing since I was about 17. 
Um, but when I moved over here and I left a contract manufacturer, I actually was doing in-flight entertainment for corporate aircraft, which was super fun. You fly down to Texas and stuff and you crawl around in these super nice jets for elite people in the world, you know, the king of Kazakhstan or, you know, whatever it is. Uh, they're just really cool planes. Um, so to leave that job was kind of difficult as well. Come on, Chad, you own your own business. You have a plane too, right? That's what my friends all think. <laughs> yeah. Right. A paper plane. Yeah. <laughs> origami, origami airlines, right? Exactly. Uh, Allison, did you have uh, the, the desire to work uh, for yourself uh, to, to be an entrepreneur or was this also just one of those happenstance, um, you know, pinball machine moves that life brings you? Yeah, I think um, out of the box was definitely Chad's baby in the beginning. Um, he had the talent and the skills to really get it off the ground from an engineering perspective. And it was something that just sort of happened. You know, I think I think the conversation went something like um, something like this. Well, if if we think we can do it so much better, then why don't we give it a try? <laughs> and we just found ourselves uh, doing it. And and similarly, Chad, Chad and I, we both worked uh, our separate jobs. Um, during the first few years of out-of-the-box manufacturing. So there was a lot of double duty there for quite a while. Chief cook and bottle washer and everything else, right? That's the way, <laughs> that's the way it is. What you said, you'd, you'd, one of you, or maybe both of you, I, I don't remember, said that you were in this industry before. Allison, I think you said that. You were in this industry before. Were there any issues saying goodbye? I'm, uh, you know, uh, goodbye, former employer, uh, meet your new competitor. Were there any awkward moments or, or legal things that went on? That, that happened a, a little later. It, it wasn't initial. We didn't, we didn't leave our previous jobs going, oh, hey, we're, we're going to go around the corner and start our own business. Um, there, was, there was a period of time in between there. Chad said he worked for a company that did corporate aircraft. And I actually switched gears and went back to school and, and took an HR job uh, for another uh, wire and cable harness manufacturer. So we both had a little bit of a, a, a break in between there before Out of the Box really started to get going. Mm -hmm. Where'd you come up with the name Out of the Box? Got to think out of the box, man. <laughs> yeah, like we were sounds. just standing around a table one, one day and throwing ideas out, and, and that one just came out. Well, I like it. It suits uh, the way you run a business uh, from everything I've read. So you decided to leave, you know, the so-called security uh, of a of a regular job, a nine to five paycheck, you know, W two, uh, for the unknown world of entrepreneurship, and you decided to enter an industry that is quite capital intensive. You know, these these machines that you all had to buy or lease or borrow or steal or you know whatever uh, are not cheap. You know, there's. Well, don't steal it. Yeah, no stealing. <laughs> Chad's on record. Nothing was stolen. They have the pink slip yeah. on everything. But, um, but you did enter it into a, you know, you didn't open a, a flower store or an art shop or something or a coffee store, uh, which are expensive enough. You, you opened a business that requires uh, a significant amount of, of real estate, uh, square footage, and office space, and really uber expensive equipment. So how, how did you swing that? Uh, was there financing involved? Did you run up all your credit cards and drain your bank accounts? And, and did your friends stop returning your calls because they knew what you were asking? <laughs> what, what, was the, uh, what was the pathway to funding this, this endeavor? Well, that's why I kept my day job for so long. Um, my day job kind of funded the business, if you will. And um, 
time, what, what I did is I went up to, you know, some of the, I've been in this industry for a long time, since I was 17, was that 20, I don't know, it's been a long time. Um, so I was first at Vision Tech for eight years and I learned the machines from the bottom up. I went to Keytronics and then I went to, you know, uh, whereas Mexico and China, machines there. Um, so what I did is I went out and found really old, beat up machines that really weren't functional and were cheap. And I repaired them, fixed them, made them work for us. That is a huge advantage to know your equipment, to know how to work on your equipment, to know how to evaluate used machines and know if they're any good or if they're completely worn out. That's something uh, of a gift. And to have that at the beginning of your business journey as opposed to in the middle to the end of your business journey, like most people finally figured out, is, is probably one of the key advantages that you have. So tell me about the startup experience. So you, you, you get married, you come back, you start a business, and um, how did you find that first year, not of marriage, but of, of the business? How did you find that first year to be? Was it difficult? Uh, did difficulties occur at all? Was it a magic carpet ride? Uh, tell me about the first year or two in starting this business, about how you found customers, I assume people knew who you were already, but how you, how you acquired customers and how you assured them that you're going to be around uh, to support what you've done and what some of the challenges were. So I think I got to break it into like two sections because 2008 is when we started the business. And at that time, basically, I was only box builds. I just left an um, Some of those customers were very happy. I entered the, you know, the aviation market, so I was completely out of the contract manufacturing world so i was just doing box build and that's right at the peak of you know 2008 you know the peak of the market um, so that's another it, thing too you not only got married and started a business you did it in the middle of the greatest recession the greatest economic collapse since the depression uh, which yes. i failed to mention at first uh, so i think i was so overwhelmed by the fact that you were married and started a business on the same year i totally forgot about the recession that's yes. another factor it is. It is. So we, we did okay with the box build stuff. That was that was kind of fun, and that, I I did that primarily by myself. Um, and like I said, there was about a year hiatus there that we basically didn't do any business. We were thinking about shutting it down. Um, and we had some other customers come to us and say, "Hey, can you build circuit boards?" <laughs> so that's when it got serious. That's when I put the pick and place machine in my in my garage at my house. Um, I wired in an oven. I got a screen printer, a little manual screen printer. Um, you know, I've got soldering irons, ESD mats, all that kind of stuff and geared my garage up. Um, so at that point, it kind of got a little more. And I want to add to, I think, uh, part of our success, especially early on, really comes from uh, the, the team that we were able to rely on. Folks that we knew and grew up with. Uh, in the industry that we knew we could trust and would be willing to work as hard as we were to get this thing off the ground. And those folks are still with us. And I, I would say with without them and, and all of us being really committed to this vision, it may not have worked out the same way. Yeah, I'm glad you said that. Uh, one of my favorite business books is by Jim Collins, and the book is called Good to Great. And he studied pairs of publicly traded companies publicly traded so he can get access to their finances. And he discovered that, you know, it would be like contract two contract manufacturers, for example, um, that both serve the same market. One does 
very, very well, one struggles. And he, he looked at pairs of companies in, in various industries and determined which companies were successful and which companies were not successful in the same market and, and boiled it down to the common denominators on each side. And he had like, I don't know, 10 or 12 attributes of companies who were successful and companies who were not successful. And two of the ones that, that I can remember that are really good takeaways on the successful ones are um, do only do something if you can be the best at it, right? Don't just be an also-ran. So you have to do something and you have to be able to convince your customers that you can do it better than anybody. And second, have the right people on the bus, to your point, Allison, have the right people on the bus, as he calls it. And I know I could not, you know, in the early days, we were the people on the bus, right? You were the people on the bus. It was the two of you. And, uh, and then, you know, you... The disadvantage in you guys uh, starting a business before kids is that you don't get that instant um, uh, indentured servitude with your children, right? You can't just put your children to work. I had my daughter um, uh, come to work. At, at first, it was more daycare, and then um, she'd get summer jobs, and she'd bring her her uh, her friends from school to stuff. Back in the days when we mailed envelopes to people, right? Now it's all internet, but you know, she'd stuff envelopes and collate brochures and things like that, and then sweep the floor. And, and so we got that kind of that free labor or very cheap labor. Um, but um, I think having the right people with you really sets the tone. And uh, I know certainly the opposite is true because you know, that's happened to us. It used to be the only requirement for us was a pulse and a willingness to accept an offer. <laughs> oh, you'll take this? You're hired. Uh, but then you learn. So how do you, uh, how do you attract good talent when you're a startup? Because, you know, the, 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 I enjoy working with startups. I, I entered this industry in 1985 working for a startup, an equipment manufacturer in this industry. And a lot of people think, you know, they'd rather have the corporate job because it's safer. And I, I think, you know, corporate jobs, when they fire you, because business is bad, it comes as a surprise. On a, on a startup, you can, you can smell what's cooking in the kitchen, right? You can't hide it, right? The, the curtain's not thick enough to hide behind. And... And everyone kind of knows, for better or for worse, everyone knows what's going on. But sometimes if you have the right people, it makes them feel part of the adventure, right? They, they maybe work a little harder because they can see the struggle is real. Uh, was, that, was that your experience? It, or let me, let me rephrase that. Was it difficult to attract talent to a small, quite literally, mom-and-pop uh, business? Or was that an attribute? Was that what attracted people? I think that, um, you know, there may be a little bit of both to, to that. It, it, for technical positions, it has been extremely difficult over the years to attract talent just because there's not that many people uh, where we operate that know what we do or, and how to do it. So, um, you know, wanting to be good corporate citizens, we weren't in the market to steal people from other organizations and we put a lot of effort, especially in the last three or four years, to develop pipelines of talent with local uh, schools to, to make sure that we're really setting, setting uh, ourselves up with talented individuals. Um, a point of pride that we have, Chad mentioned earlier, that machine that he picked up that wasn't functional, that was our first pick and place machine. We actually donated that to a local technical school uh, in the last couple of years so that students could learn how to design 
uh, and manufacture circuit boards as part of their education. So that's given us a, a, a place that we know we can go to find talented individuals. Um, secondly, though, I think that I learned quite a while ago that recruiting people to join a small company, um, you really have to do a lot of vetting in early on in that recruiting process. And I started asking people if they'd ever worked for a small company before. And if they'd, you know, if they were comfortable doing things outside of their job description. And I almost wanted to scare people away a little bit at first. And I'd say, well, I do my own filing and I take out my own garbage. And not that I'm saying that you have to do that every day, but if I'm willing to do that, I'm looking for other people that are willing to have that same commitment to the greater good. So if that is not you, that is okay. But that's the type of person we're looking for. I muted myself, sorry. Uh, um, excellent. I think um, hiring people is one challenge. Sustaining them, mm -hmm. keeping them, um, getting out of their way so they can grow is another gift. It's another talent uh, that some people have and some don't. Sounds like you have that. Uh, tell me about growth. You know, my experience is growth is a dangerous seduction. And, you know, everyone tells you, that if you have a business, the number one thing is growth. You have to grow, and which is true. Obviously, you can't put pick and place machines in your garage for ten years and and you know and call it a business a successful business. But but the idea of growth is expensive. Growth costs money, and in your business especially, you know I guess you can scale up if you have one surface mount line, you can grow to the capacity of that line. If you get one extra customer, quite literally, you have to put another, at some point you have to decide to put another line in, but you may not have enough business to keep that line busy, you know, 40 hours a week or however many hours. So, uh, and growth usually comes at the expense of cash flow. Personally, I think the three most important uh, rules of business are cash flow, cash flow, and cash flow, right? At first, at least with my business, when we were a very young business, it was really not about profit. I, I had no idea if we were making money. I didn't. I wasn't savvy enough at that point to really read a balance sheet and, and an income statement and a cash flow projection. I was just looking to see if we can cover payroll next week. And, you know, if we made money, we made money. Uh, so how do you manage the polar opposite uh, factors of growth and cash flow? Because one sucks up the other. Uh, so tell me about that. Tell me your experience when you had to add that second line or add more equipment for one customer and you didn't have enough customers to, to really make that pay off, but you hoped you would. Describe that journey for me. Yeah, so, I mean, we weren't at a stage where we had three shifts, 24 hours a day. With, um, so we really were working with one shift in, in on that first surface mount line. So when we got jobs that were our capacity, I just stayed all granite. Day from when they left to when they got there in the morning and, and just keep running the jobs to make sure the lines kept running. Um, would I recommend other people do that? No, but uh, that was the way we grew our business and the way that we managed the cash flow because it didn't cost me anything more to stay all night and do that. Um, it just, I had to get it done. So until we got to a point in a way that we could actually buy more equipment, uh, we that that's just kind of what we did. I still if you were. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, 
how much of your business success is Chad and Allison and how much of it is luck percentage wise? I think that there is a fair amount of luck in what we do. Um, but, but luck, luck is also increased by the amount of hard work and dedication that you put into an endeavor. You know, I mean, um, people, people will ask me, I want to start my own business. What, what should I consider? What, what should I be prepared to do? And I always tell people, be prepared to work your butt off because if you're not prepared to work your butt off and fund it yourself, then you may not make it, you know? So it, it, it really is uh, luck of your own making, I think. Yeah, I think that's a good, that's a good explanation. I think it, it always involves some degree of luck, uh, but luck alone is just a, you know, a night in Vegas, right? Uh, th- there's not a lot of skill, you know, betting and roulette. Uh, everyone has a strategy, but it's really comes down to luck at the end of the day and luck will always run out. So I think that skill uh, combined with luck is, is the right combination. Uh, what did you, Can I ask? yeah. So, um, I think in the beginning, luck was played a big part in stuff. You know, it, we had to go out and find that first customer. That, that's lucky, right? We had to go out and find this equipment that broke and actually bank on, I can fix it. Right. So that's luck. Um, but once we got going and once we defined what we wanted to be, rather than just taking everything that we could possibly find, right. There's a certain stage of your business early on that you just, I don't care what it is. I, I, you know, I got to shovel at the back of a, a trailer out. Cool. I'll do that. You know, whatever it is, it doesn't matter. We'll take any job. Um, but once we get going and we define who we are, and what we want to be and the direction of the company, I think that luck kind of fades and more, you know, uh, me and Allison shine together as yin and yang. Oh, so many questions now just came to mind. Uh, I want to make sure I don't forget them. Uh, you, you talk about uh, early days, you know, you, you just want to get a customer, right? And, and I understand that. We did the same thing. Any, any sale is a good sale, even if you don't make money on it. Any sale is a good sale. At some point, you get to a, a corporate maturity where you start to choose your customer just as, as much as your customer starts to choose you. So from your perspective, who is your perfect, not company name, but what type of customer is the perfect customer for out-of-the-box manufacturing? What are, you, what are you looking for when you shop for customers? Other than the ability to, you know, uh, to pay. Um, there's got to be something behind just the profit margin that, that you would make on a customer. What, what is the ideal customer for you guys? We actually went through a core customer exercise, um, and we have we have two business development managers that really focus on one focuses on quick turns and prototypes, and the other focuses on small to medium volume sales. So each of those groups developed a, a customer persona, if you will. Um, so for for small to medium volume manufacturers, OEMs, we are looking for someone who has a a product that they want to keep stateside. They want to be close to their uh, CM so that they can come over and 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 work out uh, assembly issues or supply chain issues or work out tests or you know maybe we're going to do their uh, NPIs for them and help build up to volume. Um, conversely, in the quick turn and and prototype side of things, we're we're looking for people that. Um, they've got a complex uh, project that 
they need help uh, moving quickly. And so we will bring a lot of solutions and technical expertise to the table to help make sure that that happens. As well as yeah. supply chain. As well as what? Supply chain. Right, exactly, exactly. Um, contract manufacturing is not a commodity business, yet some people treat it as such, right? They just think oh, that's a contract manufacturer on every corner. I know here in Southern California, there quite literally is an, in an, a Starbucks on every corner and a contract manufacturer on every other corner. Uh, how, how does out of the box separate itself from the others? And, and you know, there, there are a number of companies that do what you do. Um, how do you stand out? How do you become, as I said on the, on the last podcast, how do you become, you've seen those stock images of like a bunch of white ping pong balls with a red one in the middle, you know, the one that stands out. How do you become that red ping pong ball? How do you stand out from other manufacturers? If I called you up, if I called 10 CMs up and then I talked to you guys, what would I, what vibe would I get from you that would cause me to go, these guys are different. Yeah, I think there's two things. Um, first is service. Uh, we are we have decided that we want to be the the Nordstroms of uh, customer service in in CM. Um, the next thing is technical expertise. So our our salespeople are extremely knowledgeable um, in really how things work at a CM, and and they can. Um, they can answer questions about part fit and placement and quality. And they know the ISO standards inside and out. And, you know, they know how to put together a C of C and, uh, you know, all kinds of, of good stuff that maybe in other organizations, uh, salespeople don't necessarily have the ability to do. You said something very interesting. You said you wanted to be the Nordstrom. Uh, I talked about this on um, the last episode when the economy went bad. Two business groups survived. Two types of business groups actually thrived. One was the very low end, you know, the Amazon type, Walmart type, uh, that, that spent billions building an infrastructure so they could run on a 3% profit margin successfully. Uh, and the other was the high end. Everyone in the middle just couldn't differentiate themselves. They died. And and they, they just, you know, there was just not enough uh, oxygen in the water and the, you know, many fish died, to, to use that analogy. So it sounds like you're not in this business for the low-end, cheap, beat-any-price, work-your-fingers-to-the-bone thing, uh, which many are. There are many, not just contract manufacturers, but there are many people in our industry and any other industry that just think that the way to success is to discount. And, you know, the old, the old saying is, you know, I lose money on every order, but I'll make it up in volume. Right? So, and, and I think that's a little bit of a seduction for new business. We did that. You know, we, we wanted to be, um, you know, we thought we were the high price leader, but when, when ego gets involved and, and you want to get that order and, and most importantly, you don't want them to get that order. Uh, you, you just, you know, you do what you can, and and sometimes that's kind of selling your soul, selling your profit, selling your future, your children's future, by by reducing your price to the point where you can't make any money. Um, did that was was that a transition for you, or did you just start off with that kind of higher mindset uh, to know that uh, there's no future in in losing money? 
in the first couple, you know, two, three years, like you say, you take any job. It doesn't matter if it makes money. It's, it's, I've got an employee sitting here that can build it and they don't finish it. I'll stay late and do it. Right. But once, you know, we developed, uh, we don't want to be the, the cheap on the block. We want to provide a higher level of service. We don't want to be the most expensive either. Uh, we want to think out of the box, find creative ways to do the processes, do them cheaper, do them faster. So we can provide a higher level of service at the same price. Yeah. Excellent. And you started off that way. You didn't have to learn that by, well, you started off taking any order you can because that primes the pipeline, right? That's, yeah. that's the uh, starter fluid down the carburetor basically, but you can't run on that forever. Um, right. What skills do you possess today after all these years of running uh, out of the box uh, that you didn't possess before when you started the business? Uh, me personally, I was an engineer, so I, Anything about the balance sheets, like you said, I didn't know anything. But uh, I didn't know anything about debt income ratios. I didn't, you know, you know, payroll that kind of stuff. How do I pay my employees? And what QuickBooks? What? How do I run this thing again? Put it in income versus expense versus, you know. <laughs> Who so, knew that, I, Allison? Did you bring that to the table? Oh heck, no. No. <laughs> so you are very typical entrepreneurs who who knew how to write checks and deposit checks and, and someone told you whether you were making or losing money. It, that's probably the beginning of it, right? I, I had to get QuickBooks installed. Once I got QuickBooks installed, I started learning the program. We did have an accountant that we worked with that kind of educated me a little bit on that. So I was watching that pretty good from the beginning and learning what all this stuff meant. And was, I had to be the guy that learned, learned the accounting side to, to grow our business. Yeah, someone once told me, and I didn't take their advice or their advice didn't make any sense until much later in my experience is know your numbers, crawl through your numbers. And one, someone told me once crawl through your chart of accounts. That's where you'll find things, you know, particularly if you're trying to save money and you're trying to, you know, eke out a little bit more profit to keep the bank happy, whatever. Um, when you look at the chart of accounts, you really see how much you're spending in every category. And, and when we did that, when we started going through our chart of accounts, we found that our, uh, our accountant was um, uh, stealing <laughs> and eventually went to jail for that. But it, I think that's kind of a negative example, but it is an, it's an it's a accurate example of what happens when you're so laser focused on surviving and building your business. You, know, you don't see the small details. And you know, I think that's a lesson for every uh, every business owner, particularly a new business owner, is know your numbers like your children, right? Just just crawl through them, you know, maybe every night before you go to bed, you know, if, if, you, uh, if you don't want to sleep, crawl through those numbers and, and just be intimately familiar with them because, you know, that's, that's your platelet count. That's, your, you know, that's how many units of blood you have in your veins. I mean, that's what keeps the business going. And so many uh, entrepreneurs are so busy running their business uh, that they're working in their business, not on their business. So, so when did you uh, realize, if assuming you have, I assume you have because you've been around quite some time, you've beat the 10-year statistics of 75% of all businesses fail within 10 years, according to the National Bureau of Labor Statistics. So you beat that. Um, and that doesn't, that doesn't happen just by luck. Luck would run out, as we talked about earlier. Uh, did you get to the point where you started working on rather than in your business and, and and tell me how that 
was that an aha moment or did you always start off that way or did you follow the same path as everyone else where you kind of learned that you need to work on as at least as much as you work in your business? I was actually going to mention that as the thing that I, I learned over the last 10 years or 12 years. Um, I did not start out knowing that. Um, and I think, you know, with, like we said, Chad was really the, the brains behind the business for the first several years. And um, especially for him, making that transition from being the guy that knows how to build every assembly that comes through the door to the guy that's going to teach everybody else how to know every assembly that comes through the door. That's a huge learning curve. Um, and for myself as well, recognizing that my job wasn't necessarily to hold everyone up and keep keep plates spinning, but was to figure out how to empower everyone else that was holding plates. That that was that was a certainly and still something that I'm I'm learning. Well, when we started investing in the company, right? You know, so after we start to stop taking every job and we define who we want to be, that's when we realized that we need to invest in the company. We needed to start, you know, growing the company and diving deeper into it. Um, and one of our um, uh, Impact Washington. She said, she told me personally, you need to stop being the quarterback and start being the coach, you know, leading to what Allison said. So that, that's when I had to transition from doing everything, staying all night, running all the equipment to training people to do that and start, you know, learning the finances and growing the business from what we wanted to see. Yeah, I think you otherwise hit up that, uh, what's it called, Peter Principle, where you know, your business can only grow to the amount of hours you have in a day and the amount of talent you have as a single person. Um, it's like a, a restaurant with two tables. You know, they, they, they can't do a million dollars a year on two tables. They can, they, they can only do so much and you can only raise your prices so much. At some point, you have to get more tables and to accommodate more customers. And in your case, you know, you need more table, you need more Chads and more Allison's to, to, um, to grow, grow the business. It can't all be you. And, and I used to do the same thing. I, I would sell by day, build by night. You know, I, I would go in on a Monday and not come home till Wednesday night and then, you know, crash for six hours and then back again for another two or three days. I mean, you just do what you have to do, right? But, but you can't sustain that. That's like first gear in a car. It's high rev. It's, you know, high revolutions. Everything's just shaking. It's going so fast and it gets you off the line, but you can't sustain that. You know, you blow up the transmission and, and there's a point in time too where i'm an engineer right and now this company is x size and i don't know how to be a ceo i don't know how to grow the business further what am i doing right so we actually went out and got an executive coach to kind of help us guide us through our goals our mission what we wanted to do our core customer value a whole bunch of stuff that we went through that really kind of see the vision of where we wanted to take the company rather than just having the company take us wherever it went I did the same thing. I joined a CEO peer group uh, called Vistage, and uh, I'm not with them anymore, but, but it, I, I really value that experience because I was around every month we met, uh, there was eight or 10 you know, CEOs, uh, company owners, founders, CEOs. And uh, you know, the first thing you wanna do is you know, look at each other and lie to each other about how well you're doing. And then you realize you can't, that, that charade doesn't last too long because there's, pride and ego and all that involved. And then eventually it gets real. And, and there's nothing more humbling than a bunch of other CEOs crawling through your books t 
telling you what you could what you're doing wrong and what you could do better. I mean, that is a hard experience, and and you're paying for that hard experience. Uh, was your journey with your uh, CEO coach um, similar, or did you have other CEOs around you, or was it more one on one? It was one on one. It's an executive coach, so he he was talking to me and Allison. Okay. Uh, we never got to his full plan of getting all of our managers in place and getting them all through certain programs and stuff like that. But it really helped me and Allison be a sounding. You doing the right thing, you know? Should we be going this way? What should we be looking at? I mean, I'm looking at the balance sheet. That there's numbers. Right. They're <laughs> black. They're not red. Right. That's a good sign. The bottom one says I'm making money, so I'm good. Right. <laughs> yeah, that's um, that's funny. I, I I remember the first time someone walked me through this and it's so elementary. It's almost embarrassing to say that it was even an aha, an aha moment. It was uh, the concept of discounts. You know, if we gave a 10% discount, that was about 106% of our profit. <laughs> so, you know, if we, if we give a 10% discount, uh, we have to sell other machines at a lot more money just to make up for that. And, and people just didn't realize that. And in our industry, particularly the pick and place side of our industry, the way they sell I don't like the way they sell. The way they sell is they have the price and then there's the price. And that could be a 50% difference. And there's one particular brand that was known for that. You know, they'd say the machine is $300,000, but if you order today, we'll put it in your factory for 150. We'll let, you don't have to pay for it for a year. You know, it was very used car-ish. And, and unfortunately that got out to, you know, it got set into the mentality of, of buyers. Uh, they would go look at other types of equipment like cleaners, like we make, and, uh, and they would go, well, yeah, we know that that's not really the price. And we're like, no, that's the price. And they're like, well, no, because I got a $200,000 discount on my Juki machine or whatever. And, and uh, it's like, well, that's not us. There's no money in there for that. But that was always kind of a re-education. We had to re-educate the customer that, yeah, some businesses do that. We, you know, let's start the conversation over. Our $100,000 machine is really 200000 Would you like a 50% discount? I mean, we could play that game, right? So the Washington, you have a, a local magazine, uh, where is it? The Seattle, Seattle Business Magazine uh, wrote about you, and they actually gave you an award um, about the, uh, uh, you were Manufacturing Executives of the Year for small businesses, and they described you two as the next generation of manufacturing leadership. What do they see in your company that sets you apart from other manufacturers? Because I assume it's not just contract manufacturers in our industry, it was manufacturers in general. So what do they see in you guys? Uh, I think I think one of the things that's a little bit different about us is that we really uh, participate in the manufacturing community and in workforce development in ways that uh, other manufacturing organizations might not. And that really uh, came from the difficulty in recruiting talent at an early stage. We decided we were going to network, we were going to participate, and we were going to be out there all the time myself and our sales managers, you know, we just, we just go all the time. We participate in everything. The more we know and the more we mingle and the more we network, it just makes us a more valuable member of the manufacturing community. And as a contract manufacturer, you know, we're not an OEM. We're not building a finished product. We are somewhere in the middle of somebody else's product. So we really want to participate and add value at a high level throughout the manufacturing process for OEMs. So if we know how to connect people with design help, 
and PCB fab and, you know, how to find alts for their parts and where to go for potting and plastics and, you know, all of these other things, um, we can provide a much higher level of service. Excellent. And I think for me and Allison, really yin and yang too. Um, Allison's really outgoing. She loves going to all those things, talking to all those people and everything else. I like my machines, my process and everything else. So if somebody comes to me and says, here's a part, I don't know how to build it. Well, let me look at it and I can maybe help you figure out how to manufacture it. So I'm, I'm kind of the more hands-on, the engineering type, the, you know, that type. And she's more the outgoing, networking, all that kind of type. And we really yin and yang really good there. Yeah, that, that does work out well because if both of you were like Allison, no one would be there to solve the problems, right? And, <laughs> and if both of you were like Chad, no one would be there to uh, no engage, one know who asking engage questions. customers and <laughs> jump on all those SMTA meetings I've seen you on and, and things like yeah. that. So, Allison, uh, there are, in, in my opinion, uh, way not enough women in our industry. Uh, what do you think is the cause of that? Is this a male sent? Do, do guys hire guys? Is that part of the problem? Are there not enough women coming up in, you know, certain engineering uh, uh, experiences? Is that part of the problem? It and and how do we fix it? Um, there, that's a, that's a big question, right? And there's probably different answers to that question. Um, I think that. If, from a technical side of things, um, even even myself, um, you know, in in middle school and high school, um, I would be one of those girls that said, you know, I I hate math. I'm not a math person. You know, um, let me go be in the leadership program because I'd much rather uh, make friends and 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 talk to people. Um, I'd much rather write a paper than do a math problem. Whereas, you know, Chad and, and other guys were, were better suited for math. So I think we have to do a, a really good job in elementary school, middle school, and high school of encouraging girls to participate in math and science. Um, a huge source of pride, Chad and I, our, our oldest um, is 10 now, but when she, when she was in third grade, she went to the science fair and she built a circuit and we were just so excited in fact okay so like i said not a technical person mom helped build a circuit with our you know eight-year-old at the time um little battery and an led on a piece of felt with some conductive thread and then dad came home and said hey uh you want to put a switch in it and they dug through the toy box and they found a toy that didn't work anymore and they salvaged a switch and then you know he and her put a put a switch on the circuit so um i think that's a prime example supporting girls at an early age in those disciplines really helps give them a leg up but i think also there's been a, an emergence of women's groups in the industry over the last couple of years. And I think that that's really empowering because um, I can say from experience, if I had a dollar for every time I walked into a room and I was the only woman there, <laughs> right? you know, um, it, so we just women in general, too, uh, and, and our male allies, we need to lift each other up and empower each other and make sure that we're shining the light on other people that deserve to have the light shined on them. Excellent. I, I do see changes. I see two changes in our industry. One is what we refer to as the silver tsunami. The, the old folks, mm -hmm. the older wise sages are all retiring. And that's 
finally allowing younger people to come into our industry and, and move up. Uh, and I'm seeing more and more women in our industry. It's still way lopsided, way more lopsided than it should be, in my opinion. Um, I consider myself quite a feminist. I only have one child. She's a 36-year-old mother of two now, two, our grandchildren. Um, and, you know, I've, I've always, you know, taught her, or at least tried from a dad standpoint to, you know, don't you dare wait for that phone to ring. You know, don't, don't sit home waiting for that phone to ring. If you want to go out with someone, pick up the phone and call. And, 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 and now she's to the point, she just rolls her eyes. But dad, come on. You know, she'll call me Gloria Steinem sometimes. <laughs> Stop talking, Gloria. Uh, but um, uh, but I, I do think that there are not enough, um, still not enough women in our industry. And uh, but I do see light at the uh, you know coming through the tunnel. And I'm seeing more and more younger people, which we need as well, and mm -hmm. uh, more and more women coming in. So. Uh, when I do uh, go to a technical conference, I, I do see women on the stages, which I would never see before. I mean, not just one or two, that never see before. So it's, it's, it's good to see that. And I know that SMTA has, you know, women's groups that, uh, that meet every month. I try and crash that party uh, once in a while. And um, uh, it's good to see that, that networking uh, going on. And I, I, I do agree, no matter what group you're in, uh, whether it's young professional, male or female or you know, old veterans, whatever it is, that there has to be this empowering motive behind it. Uh, they need to help lift each other up, not step on each other's hands as they you know, go up the ladder. So um, I think that's good. Last couple of questions, and then we'll wrap this up. Um, knowing everything you know today, would you still start this business all well, these years in? No way. <laughs> That's the answer that uh, I would love to hear from everybody, but I know it's not true. I, I if think you that like two years in, I, that's probably would have been the answer. But oh, uh, sure. now I'm, I'm, I'm proud of what we've done. I'm proud of where we're at. I'm proud of our employees and our team who have allowed to grow. And yeah. Yeah. It, it's funny. Everyone says that, that, you know, they go, heck no, there's no way I'm going to do this. But, but we all know you would do it again. Uh, and it's in your blood well, and you're on, yeah. and you're unhirable now. No one will hire you because once you, once you work for yourself, you become very bad employees because you just don't put up with any BS, right? You know, the, because you're used to being in control and, and I think you, you know, I don't have the stomach for politics, office politics. Uh, you know, I, I would, I would get fired within a, within a few days, the moment I question something and, yeah, they'd show me the door. So I think we all become unhirable. Um, what advice would you give? This will be our last question. What advice would you give to the next Allison and Chad uh, that are going to start a business, any business, not just in our industry, but in general? What advice would you give them knowing everything you know now, uh, knowing everything you thought you knew, and now everything you do know, uh, what advice would you give to the next budding entrepreneur? Um, it's going to be a lot of work. It's going to be a lot of hours. It's going to be a lot of stress and everything else to get it off the ground. But if you can survive the first three years, really hone in on your niche and your market and what you want the company to be rather than what the environment wants you to be, uh, and that's your passion, then you'll succeed. 
but it's not something you can just do half-heartedly. Right. Go, go big, go home, right? Mm -hmm. Right. And, and find people that um, are smarter than you and hire them, you know, um, and, and culture is such an important part of a good, cohesive team. You know, finding people that care about the vision and the mission as much as you do. Um, and, and for husband and wife teams, um, don't step on each other's toes. You know, Chad had said, and I've, I've said as well, we aren't good at the same things. And and I let Chad be good at the things that he's good at, and I don't mess in his sandbox, and he lets me be good at the things that I'm good at, and and he doesn't give me grief about it either. So, you know, there's a there's a real um, key to that. A lot of trust the end, required there. Leave it, leave it at work. Go home. Turn it off. Yeah. That's what I was going to ask you. Yeah. Um, yeah. I said this was my last question, but now, now that you've said that, I have to cheat a little bit. Uh, don't bring work home with you, I think is what you'd said during the little break we had. Um, you, you keep work at work and you keep home at home. It, that's, that's, a, that's a skill set that one has to learn. And I learned that the hard way um, because, you know, I'm always thinking about work. And, and yeah. even when I'm not talking about it, it's, it's always going on. So, uh, that is that definitely a, a skill set that that needs to be uh, acquired. Uh, otherwise, yeah. Otherwise, there's there's no safe zone, right? You need your safe space, which is your home and your family. Did, yeah. did that come naturally? Was that like an agreement you guys made? Like, we're going to do this, but here are the ground rules. We're not going to bring this home. Or did that finally just get you know booted out of of, of home conversation? I was trying to do that before I even owned my business, coming home from other jobs and stuff like that leaving my job, my stress or whatever at work and just completely turning that off and being focused at home. But it's never a hundred percent, right? I mean, we still have conversations. We had conversations last night over the dinner table about, you know, certain things at work, but for the most part, just leave work at work and just have family time to be family time. Especially if it's something that you don't agree on. I would much rather disagree about work stuff at work than at the dinner table or you know, on a, on a weekend when we're supposed to be spending family time together. So if, if you recognize that there's a difference between saying, hey, what'd you think about that phone call today? And you know, trying to really power through a disagreement at home. I think that that's, that's what you've got to separate. And when you yeah. do have a disagreement at work, leave it at work. Go home, you're yeah. still family, husband and wife. You can't bring that drama back home. You can't do it, you can't do it. Pick that that is up. why you guys are a successful married um, uh, business owners. That is why. I think that is the key right there. Uh, two keys. You trust each other. You stay out of each other's sandbox, if, as you said. You trust that the other person knows what they're doing and, and don't meddle with it. And uh, you don't bring that stuff home. Uh, you leave it at the office. I think those are the, those are the two takeaways right there uh, for me. We discovered the same thing, but we discovered it the hard way, right? We. <laughs> We, it, it, we didn't just start off with like, hey, here's the rule. This, this, this. No, it, it was, we realized that something has to give, you know, either the marriage or the business. Uh, and, and I love both. And we can't, you know, and it works out well to have both. But yeah, you've got to come up with those ground rules. And either up front, if you're really super smart, or eventually, you know, because there's no other choice. Uh, which was my case. Well, it's been a pleasure talking to you two. Uh, thank you so much. Uh, you've shed a lot of light. You've answered a lot of questions for me. 
uh, and I appreciate that. Uh, anything uh, you want your uh, our our viewers to uh, know about um, out of the box manufacturing that hasn't been said? Uh, like we can provide your contact information. Is that okay? Absolutely. Yeah, that'd be great. Visit us at obmfg.com. Uh, email questions to sales at obmfg.com. Check us out on LinkedIn and uh, Twitter and Facebook, all that kind of good stuff. And thanks especially to you, Mike, for having us on. Uh, it was a lot of fun to be able to talk about our business and also hear from you. And I'm really looking forward to learning a few things from uh, your other guests as well. Yeah, I think it'll be very insightful. Well, thanks for uh, being our second guest on the show. You've doubled, uh, we've doubled our, our uh, episodes today. Um, next time we'll, we'll increase them by 30% <laughs> and then it's smaller numbers there. But thank you for being part of this. Uh, I really appreciate it. And I was uh, uh, eager to uh, talk to you too. Um, and I know we've had this on the books for quite some time. Uh, the only challenge in interviewing entrepreneurs is that they have booked up calendars, uh, which is a good <laughs> sign, right? Um, so uh, I guess if an entrepreneur said, yeah, I'll talk to you tomorrow, uh, that probably maybe the less successful because they're not so busy. So um, I'm, I'm glad that uh, you, you found the time and uh, and thank you for being my, my guest today. I really appreciate it. And I wish you, I don't need to wish you luck. You already have it uh, and skill. But um, again, I wish you all the, all the best uh, moving forward with your business. Appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks, Mike. Well, that's a wrap. Thanks for being part of episode number two of the Concept to Creation podcast. And a special thanks to my guests today, Allison and Chad Budvarson of Out of the Box Manufacturing. They're located in Renton, Washington. If you're listening to the audio version of this podcast, be sure and hit the subscribe button so you'll be notified of new episodes. We're available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and virtually wherever you get your podcasts. We also have this available as a video version. If you're watching this on our Concept to Creation YouTube channel, thanks for watching. There's a subscribe button down there somewhere. Be sure and hit the subscribe button and also click the bell icon. That will send you notifications every time we drop a new episode. New episodes will be released on the first and third Tuesday of each month. And my email address is down here. If you'd like to send me comments or questions or episode suggestions, please do so. My email address is mike at mikeconrad.com. That's Conrad with a K. Thanks again for watching. Stay safe, stay healthy, and of course, stay happy. And we'll see you again very soon.